Take your Bible and turn to the Old Testament prophet Amos. Amos is where we are as we're moving through the minor prophets, summarizing each prophet book by book, trying to get the big picture of what these prophets were saying. Amos is where we are today, just after the prophet Joel. And here is the key concept for this morning. God cares about injustice. That is Amos' issue. God cares about injustice. Now, if you like rooting for the underdog, then you're going to like rooting for Amos. Amos shows us the common man in action when that man is sold out to what God wants him to do. Amos was not a professional preacher. He's not a professional prophet. Amos is a shepherd, a shepherd from a small town called Tekoa, south of Jerusalem. But he's called to minister in the northern kingdom in the big city of Bethel. Now, there are, there are uh, towns with names that when you just hear the name, you can get a sense of the place. Towns with names that kind of let you know that this is kind of a countrified place. It's not a, it's not a big city or a metropolitan area. I, I came across some town names from the state of Texas. Texas seems to thrive in naming towns these, these kind of names. For instance, here there's Granny's Neck, Texas, <laughs> or Pancake, or Bug Tussle. What even does that mean, Bug Tussle? But my favorite is the town of Toad Suck. <laughs> that is a real place. Now, I'm going to be embarrassed to write that on my envelopes, you know, of a mailing address, Toad Suck, really? But just by the name of this, you know, these are not big places. These are country little towns, right? Well, it's the same with Tekoa. Tekoa's name means campground. And when you come from a place named campground, you know that it's a country place. And so this country boy goes to the big city of Bethel in the north where they're used to slick and smooth presentations and he speaks a blunt message. Amos chapter 1 verse 1 says this, the words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, what he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam son of Jehoash was king of Israel. He said, the Lord roars from Zion. And thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up. The top of Carmel withers. And with that kind of imagery, he begins his presentation to the people of the north. The year was 755 B.C. And Amos is called away from his flocks, across the border, from the southern kingdom into the north. He is a contemporary, a later contemporary of the prophet Hosea and the prophet Isaiah in the, in the, in the south. However, Amos' message is different. Amos does not preach to persuade. Amos does not call the people to repentance. He does not ask them to change their ways in hopes that someday, somehow, God may relent and there would be peace again. He does not say that. Amos' Amos's message is not persuasion. It is an announcement. Judgment is coming. He makes an announcement. Amos teaches us the degree that God hates evil and dishonest gain. He shows us that just because some corner of the society is prospering, it's not necessarily because of God's blessing on them. It may well be that they've gotten where they are by dishonest or immoral means. And when that happens, judgment eventually will come. In fact, justice and the need to care for the poor, 
to reach out and show mercy to the oppressed. This is the theme of Amos. Amos and Hosea are the last two voices of prophecy in the northern kingdom before destruction comes. But they have very different approaches. You remember Hosea. Hosea uh, presents a tender object lesson in his own marriage when his wife is unfaithful, demonstrating the heartbreak of God at the unfaithful nation. Hosea tugs at the heart, but Amos goes for the jugular. He is a blunt guy, not well-educated, not trained in the issues of public speaking, not wealthy. He comes from almost the bottom of the social ladder. Shepherds were looked down on in this day. And so you can imagine that Amos must have wondered to himself, how am I going to get the attention of these city people in the north? How am I going to make them listen to me? They'll know that I'm not from there. They recognize that I'm not one of them. What's going to cause them to stop in their tracks and hear what I have to say as I stand out there on the street corner? And so Amos comes up with a plan. He styles his message in such a way to capture the attention of the people uh, in the northern kingdom. And the way he does that is the first thing he says is the punishment that their enemies face. The first thing he mentions is the fact that the nations around Israel are also going to come under the judgment of God. And you can almost sense the crowd leaning in to hear all about what their enemies are going to suffer. Let's, let's follow his logic in first, uh, chapter 1, verse 3. We'll just follow along to the, the places he names. He says, this is what the Lord says, for three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Go over to verse 6. For three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Go down to verse 9. For three sins of Tyre, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Go to verse 11. For three sins of Edom, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. And he goes on to speak against Moab and against Ammon. And you can imagine the crowds kind of gathering around this, this prophet and kind of nudging each other saying, you preach it, brother. Preach it, Moab. I hate those guys, Moab. And Edom, don't even get me started about Edom. Oh, yeah, finally a preacher that we like. Finally a prophet that's really given the word. Go for it. Yes, and they're getting all rousy, rowdy, you know, listening to all their enemies being condemned. And then he says, for three sins of Judah and even for four. Hold on. They're our cousins. Uh-oh. And you can feel this collective sense of what's going to come next. It's a brilliant tactic to kind of draw his audience in but it's more than just a tactic. It is a statement of theology that all nations are accountable to God everywhere. The sins he sees in Israel, he also sees in the nations all around Israel. And all of them are accountable to the one true God. Paul declares it in the New Testament. He says that all men have general revelation that is enough to give them an awareness of a God to whom they are responsible, but no one lives up to the light that they have. In Romans chapter 1, it says this, What may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Amos says, all those nations are without excuse. The one true God is the God of them all, and He will hold them all accountable. But let me tell you really why I'm here, Israel. And then in chapter 2, verse 6, he focuses in on his, his audience. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel and for four, I will not turn back my wrath. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. 
They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground. They deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge in the house of their God. They drink wine taken as fines. Yesterday I was in the seminar that we held here right in this room. And we read about, or we, we talked about stories where father and son use the same girl. We talked about young women who are sold for silver. We talked about the sex slave trafficking and the kinds of things that are happening in our culture. And now I read Amos, you know what? Our culture is a reflection of that culture. You know what? Satan is not very creative. He doesn't come up with, pretty new, with new ideas. It's the same old ideas cycled over and over again. But note with me, Amos stands to Israel and says, it is because of that I am announcing destruction. What is God saying to our culture? These are the specific things we were looking at yesterday. You could summarize them as injustice, immorality, and idolatry, or a carnal religion. First of all, injustice. They exploit the poor, valuing material things, wealth, and money more than people. But God had built a system uh, in His nation which valued compassion for the poor. See, there's a little tidbit there that we might not get, and that is verse 8. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. Unless you understand the, 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 the Old Testament, you're not going to get what Amos is saying. You see, it was permissible in those days, according to the law of Moses, that if somebody owed you a debt and they weren't paying it, you could take their outer cloak. You could take that coat as collateral, if you will, as a pledge that the debt would one day be paid. But listen to what Moses, through, the, through his inspiration of God, built into the law in, in Deuteronomy 24. If a man is poor, do, do not go to sleep with his pledge in your possession. Return his cloak to him by sunset so that he may sleep in it. Then he will thank you and it will be regarded as a righteous act in the sight of the Lord your God. See, the point is the person is more important than your profit. His health is more important than your money. God has constructed a system. It didn't say, listen, the rich can't be rich or they're not supposed to pay back debts or be honest and all that kind of stuff. It didn't say that. But it said you can't use your wealth to, to inflict hurt on other people. And that when you see injustice, it should be corrected. And the society should move away from these kinds of things which hurt those who are the least of these. But Amos says, you're not doing that. You don't care for their health or their well-being. Secondly, immorality. The culture is aflame with sexual sin. Father and son have sex with the same woman. God cares about rampant sexual sin. It is painful for God to see immorality and painful for God to see immorality among His people. And if there ever was a day that this message must be stressed, it is our day because the Lord's laws of morality do not change. His standard of righteousness does not alter. And even though our culture moves away from it, what is popular is not always right. And Amos is saying that. It is because of your immorality. 
And there are those then who are caught up in what I'll call carnal religion. You know, we, we know that the major religion of the northern kingdom was idolatry. We recognize that they, as a, as a, a people, had a state religion authorized by the first king, Jeroboam, to worship idols. But there were still those in the nation who sought to, to use the, the old words, Jehovah, to practice the old practices, the feasts, and to go through the motions of worship, worshiping Jehovah even while they blended that with the idolatry of the land. And so keep your finger here in chapter 2 and go over to chapter 5. And in chapter 5, Amos speaks the words of Jehovah to those who are supposedly worshiping him. Amos 5, verse 21. God is speaking. I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. In other words, you're going through the motions of religion, but it's not affecting the way you live. And what that tells me is that your religion is fake and false and your worship is empty. And I can't stand to hear it. That's God speaking. False religion. Fake piety that really doesn't affect your life. I heard a humorous story about fake piety. Two brothers grew up in a small town and they were known to be notorious sinners. They committed adultery, they were drunkards, they were dishonest in their business dealings, just, you know, everything. And, and one of those brothers died. And the other brother came to the pastor and said, Pastor, I'm going to give $100,000 to your church if in the funeral service you say that my brother was a saint. The pastor was thinking, now, hmm, $100,000, we could do a lot of stuff with $100,000 but I can't say that because it's false and everybody knows that it's false. And so he tried to come up with a way to, to kind of uh, accomplish this. And so this is how he started the funeral service. We all know that the dearly departed was a wicked man, a womanizer, a drunk, a cheat, dishonest in business and a terror to his employees. But as evil as this man was, he was a saint compared to his brother who's sitting right over here. <laughs> And he earned his check. <laughs> but what the brother wanted was false and fake piety, and that's what God was receiving from the people. Amos passes sentence. Go back to chapter 2, and we'll see the sentence that is passed against the nation caught up in these kind of evils. Chapter 2, verse 14. This is the announcement. The swift will not escape, and the strong will not muster their strength. The warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground. The fleet-footed soldier will not get away. The horseman will not save his life. The announcement is, punishment is coming. It is inevitable. It is inescapable. The next section of the book of Amos, chapters 3 through 6, we see Amos deliver three sermons that kind of flesh out the details of the punishment that's coming. But there is a principle that is established in Amos 3, verse 7 that I want you to notice. This is God's operating procedure. It was then and it still is today. Verse 7 says, Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing His plan to His servants, the prophets. Amos is saying, You've had prophets come and tell you. 
You've had preachers come and tell you. The words of God have been proclaimed to you, not only in your, their voice, but also in the circumstances that you face. Because in chapter 4, he outlines the way that God had acted in circumstances to try to get their attention, to try to move them back to repentance. He says they've experienced food shortages. They've experienced drought. They've experienced blight and mildew on their crops. They've experienced a plague of skin, skin issues and violence. And lastly, they've experienced fires. All of this, God is saying, I was trying to get your attention. These things didn't just happen. It was what I was doing to turn your heart toward me. And there's another uh, uh, signal, if you will, that God will send them. It's not explained in the book of Amos, but it's reflected in the book of Amos. And that is, a massive earthquake was about to strike, so huge that it would be a dating mechanism by which people would remember one side of the earthquake or the other side of the earthquake. And Amos mentions it in verse 1, sentence 1. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds, what he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake. See, he's writing this up after the earthquake has hit, but still nobody's paying attention. All these signs God has sent. And, he's, and he preaches these three sermons. Each of these three sermons start with the words, hear this. The first one is chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Hear this word the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. In other words, he's saying, You people have squandered your unique relationship with me. Hear this. Sermon number 2 starts in verse 1 of chapter 4. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. Right here we have the real housewives of Samaria. Okay? It's exactly what it is. Rich women who have nothing to do who have the means to help the poor, who have the means to, to, to reach out of themselves and, and assist those who are suffering, but yet who just sit around and indulge themselves. Amos says they're just cows, just like cows chewing the cud, sitting around when they could be doing much more. Listen to what's happening to them. Verse 2, the sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness the time will surely come when you'll be taken away with hooks and the last of you with fish hooks. And don't imagine that he's being metaphorical. He is not. We have uncovered reliefs, carved etchings made by the Assyrians that celebrated their victories over their enemies. And in those reliefs, the archaeologists have found, we, we, we see illustrated exactly what Amos is saying. After the devastation in the land, those who survived and are pulled off into slavery, they were led away with hooks through their lips and hooks through their nose like beasts. And the message of the Assyrians was, these people are less than human, and their God did not protect them. That's going to happen to you, cows of Bashan, says Amos. And Sermon 3 in chapter 5, verse 1, is a lamentation, a poem of sadness because of all of this. Hear this word, O house of Israel, this lament I take up concerning you. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again. Deserted in her own land with no one to lift her up. And all of this because of their separation from God, which caused them to not be sensitive to the oppressed. Verse 10 of chapter 5, You hate the one who reproves in the court and despise him who tells the truth. You trample on the poor and force him to give you grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. And though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. Now, some of your Bibles have a little different wording, so I want to touch base with it. On, on verse 10, it says, you hate the one who reproves in court. Some of your Bibles probably say at the gate. 
The NIV is interpreting there. The word is at the gate, but they real, the editors realize that that might not make sense for Americans. So let me, let me just clear it up for you. You might be confused by at the gate until you would visit an ancient city site. And what you see when you visit the ancient city sites is that in the center city is where the king and the rich lived. They built a wall around that center city, and outside of that wall is where all the poor people lived, the farmers and those who, who, who tilled the soil and so forth. And in that wall was a gate. But don't hear door when you say gate in terms of these in this time. Hear complex of rooms. It was an outer gate that opened into a complex of rooms. One of those rooms was a barracks for soldiers, usually. The other room was a courtroom where the king would come down, enter the inner gate into this complex of rooms and where they would pass judgment. That would be the courtroom for, for the town, kind of like town hall. And the reason they constructed it like that was so that the poor people could never get to the rich. They never were able to enter the city. All the decisions were made in the gate. And it was a protection so that the rich were protected from any kind of rebellion against them from the poor. And Amos is saying, well, you're using that system, but you're using it not to help the poor, but to make decisions to oppress the poor, to make their life unbearable. But Amos says, I want you to use your power to lift up those who are suffering. I want you to use your power to alleviate their pain. You should be pressing blessing into those people for whom you have a responsibility, but you're not, you leaders of the cities. Our responsibility is to press blessing into those around us, to lift up those who are suffering. That's why I love, for instance, and I support the, the quail, quail water project. As you do your recyclables and we send that money away and it digs uh, water wells in places that don't have drinking water. Hard to imagine, but they exist in our world. And we want to press blessing into that. That's why I love our local Go projects where we go out into our community, into Stockton, no strings attached blessing. You don't have to come, come back to Quail when we, when we help you out here, but we're going to press blessing into you so that you can see what, it's, what it means when people love Jesus. And we want this city to rise up and say, we're happy that people who love Jesus live in this city. That's, that's what we want to do as we press blessing. That's why we, we, we are active in our benevolent uh, needs. You know, you, many of you don't even know it, but we have a committee of people that meet to hear situations where people have emergency need, short-term emergency, something has gripped the family, and, and they just need an, uh, a financial help to get them over this, this little hump that they, they're facing. And I don't mention it ever. I never bring it up really uh, on a regular basis, but every first Sunday of the month, your bulletin says, if you want to give to the Benevolent Fund, go ahead and do that. That money never hits our program budget. We never do anything in program with that. It's all about giving it away to people who are in crisis, okay? Now, here's what you don't know. In our last fiscal year, you gave and we processed more than $90,000 for that, for that. And why I say that is because we must do that. We must be those who are pressing blessing into those who are unfortunate. And, and, but Amos says, you don't do that, people, and therefore God's judgment will rest on you. And I'm afraid that's, that categorizes our culture as well. Well, in the last, last section of Amos in chapter 7 and beyond, we see a, a series of visions, and I don't have time to detail them, but there's a vision of locusts coming on the land, and Amos prays, and God relents and doesn't send the locusts. There's a vision of fire, and Amos prays, and God doesn't send the fire. What's important there is to see how prayer matters, how God listens to prayer, and how he, how he responds to the prayers of his people. There's a vision of a plumb line, you know, that, that weight on a string that shows what straight looks like, and the message is... Israel is not straight, out of plumb, out of whack. Then there's the vision of ripe fruit, and the message is in chapter 8, it's ripe for destruction. 
Then there's the vision of God in His temple and the altar of the temple in chapter 9. And the message is a detail of the destruction that will come. And it does come. History shows us that 33 years after Amos said these words, Assyria stretched out its arm, decimated the nation, flattened the cities, and the people were hauled away as slaves. You say, 33 years? That's, that's, that's a pretty long time. Blink of an eye to God. 33 years. It was the end of the northern kingdom. They never regrouped. They were dispersed among the nations. But there is a long-term promise that actually is picked up in the New Testament. It's chapter 9, verse 11 and 12. Amos looks down the long corridor of time to a time when there will be blessing for the nation, not a divided nation, but David's nation. And he says, In that day I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its broken places, restore its ruins, and build it as it used to be. In that day they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do all these things. The reason I I point that verse out to you is because more than 800 years later, in in Jerusalem, the apostles got together for a discussion. And the discussion was, do people come to salvation through Jesus Christ simply as a gift of His grace as they respond in faith? Or do people have to become Jews and come under the law first and then get to faith? Both of these things were starting to percolate in the early church. A decision needed to be made. And so the apostles came together and they heard the presentation of the apostle Peter. They heard the presentation of the apostle Paul. And it was James, the brother of Jesus, who stood up in that meeting and he read Amos. All the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord. He used this text to say, it has always been God's vision and will that all people will receive the message of Jesus. It's not just for those who are, who are the, the Jew, uh, Jewish by heritage. It's for all those who will trust Jesus as the one true God and the one true Messiah. By grace are you saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. And James derives that from Amos, and that becomes the cry of the Apostle Paul as he circles the Roman Empire. Come to Jesus by faith. It's open to all. And so we leave Amos hearing a warning that God cares about injustice, so we must care about one another. And God cares about righteousness. And so our faith and our worship must change our lives to be more conformed to the image of Christ. Otherwise, God sees it as empty ritual, and it's something, he says, I hate that.